Hello. Hey, John. Oh, hey there, Dan Benjamin. How's everything going way up there in uh, in Seattle? I think we've got you some of your weather here today. It's been like storming and raining all all week, actually. Uh, yeah, although, you know, we don't get thunderstorms up here very much, so... I feel like you're getting some Texas weather, and uh, people often assume that uh, Washington has stormy weather, but we don't. We have drizzly, constant. When it rains here, it just sort of, it just sort of pisses rain to him. There's nothing <laughs> exciting about it. Okay, all right. Well, yeah. it's been doing a little bit of that. But there's you, been get a lot of rain. you get yeah. exciting rain. You get exciting rain. Well, scary rain in sometimes. I mean, like last night, the light. I mean, I know so many people have had the trees hit the, you know, fall and hit the roof of their house and all kinds of stuff going on here. It's, it's crazy right now. That's it's crazy. Yeah, I like that. I like that. That's that. That's that American weather. Right. We don't have American weather here. We have, we have Pacific Coast weather, which is a. It's a different ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Okay, I could see yeah. that. Right now, of course, we have uh, we the last few days we've had beautiful Texas weather. It's been eighty plus degrees, and um, nobody here likes that at all. I mean, no, the rare, that too the rare warm person for you, for you guys. Yeah, there's there. You know, there are a few weirdos that are like, "Oh, it's amazing! <laughs> wow, it's so great!" But that's not. They're not from here. No. I mean, the ones that are from here, what can you say about them, right? They're, they're traitors to the, they're traitors to the cause, traitors to the, to the way we live here. I mean, is the weather there, is it very variable, like in the middle of summer compared to like the middle of fall or spring, winter? Like, is there a huge range in temperature from one level to the next? It used to be that you could count on rain. Mm-hmm. On average, once every eight to 10 days in the summer. Mm -hmm. And it was a wonderful kind of, you know, a replenishing rain. You'd have a couple of days that were in the 80s, and then there'd be one in the 70s. And then, you know, kind of it, it would middle around. Maybe you'd get one that, you know, that got cloudy and cold. Uh, but for the last, well, more than five years. Mm -hmm. But recent, um, I remember the first year that it stopped raining in May and didn't start raining again until September. Mm. And it was, it was terrifying. It felt like something often awful had happened with the world. You know, I, it was by midsummer, we were all counting how long it had been since it rained oh. <laughs> with in like horror and amazement. And then it just kept going. It kept going. That was the year that I ran for city council. And oh, it was okay. it was in, in the nineties. All of that stuff is is abnormal. But now it's the new normal. And now we have forest fires in the in August, which we never that in my whole life I never heard of that. And now every August, apparently, the whole West burns and we choke on ash. Mm. I mean, we're in the we're in the midst of a record drought in the West, mm -hmm. which um, which happens sometimes, but it's the first time in my life that I've seen any of these things. Right, it's not good. None of it's good. Don't like it. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Don't like it, Dan. I don't. But there's so many things that I don't like. Where do I begin? 
that's not that's not that's not why we're here today. I'm no. not here just to talk about all the things I don't like. No, but I mean, it, it's natural to talk about the weather when it's bad or when it's something different than you. And you know, that's the thing I remember when I used to live in Orlando in Central Florida, college time period. Every yeah. every single day, at about four thirty, it would rain for about. 30 to 45 minutes. And it wasn't usually lightning. It was just a heavy, like a good, like a good storm, you know, no, mm. not really any wind lightning or anything like that. It would just come and chuck the rain down, just drench everything. And then it would be gone. And I used to, I used to jog a lot in college cause I didn't, I didn't know any better. And I, uh, I remember I could time, I could basically time it. You know, I'd get home from my class or my work at, you know, like around four, four thirty, And I always knew like it would rain. And then as soon as the rain would break, that's when I'd go for the jog. I could basically mm-hmm. set my clock by it. It was so weird. And then it just stopped one, one summer it just kind of stopped. And then it never did that again. It was done <laughs> like that. You got that for a few years and then it's done. But see now Come June 1st, it, we're past June 1st. It's hurricane season. Oh, hurricane season, which here in Austin is not really, doesn't really matter, but Florida and the like the I have a couple friends in Houston who are on the coast who are like oh hurricane season again, jeez! But it's like a, it's like a third of the year is hurricane season. Yeah, I think it goes from June, July, August, September. I think it ends in October because once it starts getting colder, you just the oh, yeah. hurricanes can't form. But I just remember growing up as a kid, we'd go to the Publix with my grandfather would take me to the Publix. And he'd get these uh, sheets that they would give out that were how you would track the hurricane. And they, they weren't, they had like a section on them that sort of resembled graph paper with lots of little latitude, longitude points on it. And you would tune into the radio every hour or a few hours and they would have like a hurricane update and they'd say, oh, well, this one has moved from here to here. And then we'd like go to the paper and you'd like plot your points and draw the lines. Oh, it was like uh, scoring a baseball game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How fun. How weird and fun and regional. Yeah. You know, more than anything, how regional. Yeah, and you know, I'm remembering something else I used to do with him. Their Publix used to have this thing where the, when you would buy stuff, certain things and certain amounts of money, I forget what these were called. They were like green something something with the word green in them green stamps green stamps, green green stamps. stamps. Yeah, did you have green, green stamps? stamps no that's a thing from the well it feels like a thing from the 1950s right it probably if, was when it started yeah but definitely a thing from um from the midwest from from a part of america that the west didn't really collide with right yeah, we didn't we didn't do that kind of like go down and go down and get get a free comb at the bank or that that stuff all felt like it was from comic books or from um from a culture that we only read about. Mhm. Yeah, and we used to get these green stamps and the I just googled and they were called S&H green stamps. Yes, S&H. We didn't S&H. have those either. Yeah. And so for people who don't know what the heck I'm talking about, I'll just read this. It says SNH green stamps, a line of trading stamps popular in the United States from the 1930s until the ni- late 1980s. They were distributed as part of a rewards program operated by Sperry and Hutchinson company, SNH. Mm-hmm. And basically they were like rewards. You'd go into the grocery store and they'd give you these little stamps. They look just like postage stamps. Yeah, here it says, it says they were, um, they had competitors 
greenback mm-hmm. stamps offered mm-hmm. by Piggly Wiggly. Piggly Wiggly, we didn't have those either. Uh, Gold Bell gift stamps in the Midwest. Triple S stamps offered by Grand Union. Gold bond stamps, blue chip stamps, plaid stamps, top value stamps, king corn stamps. (laughs) There's a long list of these. And then you starting to sound like an an omnibus episode. (laughs) You take them and then you put them on special cards or like pages that they would give you. And then you would take them into the store and you could buy crap. And it was the worst crap that that they had. Like, you know, it's the same kind of stuff that like, if you've been at a, a really, really corporate company for like five years and you get to like pick, you can either have the little desk globe or you can have the little glass uh, pen holder with the pen, two different pens sticking out of it, or you can have the business card holder, or you can have the like framed picture of Ronald Reagan. And like, you could, those are your choices. It was like that kind of stuff in. Yeah. SMH. I don't want any of those. Things. No, no. Yeah. The, the frequent flyer program is what that is, right? Frequent flyer is what you're doing. You're flying yeah, to the, to the S and P. Yeah. We didn't, um, somehow we weren't rewarded. Uh, <laughs> You like just going got the, to the, you paid for the food and you took it home. Yeah, going to the store, we just it was a simple transaction out west. You just went to the store and bought what you needed. There wasn't anything, there wasn't any incentive beyond needing a thing and having having a store that that had it available. Mm-hmm. Um and I you know, I feel like I feel like maybe well, Dan, if you were going to be the type of uh, middle-aged white guy who said, boy, I wish things were could go back to a simpler time, mm-hmm. now we have a regional problem, which is the simpler time. Are we? Do we want to go back to a simpler time when they would give you postage stamps and you could trade it for a framed picture of Ronald Reagan? Or do we want to go back to a different simpler time when you just went to the store and paid your money and there wasn't any other uh, gimcrack rigmarole? Yeah. Now, of course, you put in your your uh, your code, mm-hmm. your your grocery store code or your gas station code, right? And then you get some kind of points. The only the only way I ever redeem those points is that out here, at least, and this is probably true everywhere, you get uh, you get some money off your gas mm-hmm. if you if you store up grocery store points. If the grocery store and the gas, uh, and by gas, I mean petrol for those of right. our listeners around the world not uh, not gas like oxygen mm-hmm. uh, and so there is there I do see a benefit I do put in the code in other words and at the grocery store you save money right they they, they tell you you're saving money yeah although are you really are you really saving money Doesn't I'm trying not to eat sugar right now oh good for you well, it's good, but I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I'm struggling to not do it, mm-hmm. but all you have to do is not eat sugar for a week to realize what incredible poison sugar is. Oh, what have you, what have you realized? What have you learned? Well, then you, you don't eat sugar for a week. And then when you do have some sugar, you feel absolutely like shit. Yeah. Right. Instantly like shit. <laughs> and you feel like shit the rest of the day. Right. And so it's, you know, I've taken a lot of drugs, Dan, and then the, if you take a drug and you immediately feel like shit and feel like shit the rest of the day, mm-hmm. you kind of, you put that drug down lower on the list of drugs you're going to seek out. Mm-hmm. You, you generally, you know, there's a hierarchy of drugs depending on what kind of drug addict you are. Some drug addicts prefer speedy drugs. Some prefer downer drugs. Oh, right. But 
but you're going to have a list of drugs and you're going to say, what I want today is drug X. If I can't get drug X, I'll go to drug Y. I'll mm -hmm. I have a second drug, third drug. And then, you know, farther down the list, you're like, any old drug will do. I'll take whatever drug you've got. And then there are the drugs where you're like, um, God, have you got anything else? Is, are you sure that's the only drug that we have available? <laughs> and depending on how much of a drug addict you are, you know, any drug is better than no drug. So okay, you'll even sure. take the shitty drugs if that's all there is, muscle relaxants or whatever. Although there are people that are like, give me the muscle relaxants first. For me, muscle relaxants made it very difficult to to get around. Mm. What is it like yeah. I've never taken, as far as I know, I don't know if I've taken one of those. They're not painkillers, right? That's different. That's a different oh, thing. Oh, they are kind of. I mean, if your pain is in your muscles, if your okay. muscles are contracting. What would you, I mean, I know other than recreationally, what would someone give you a muscle relaxer for? Like what, what do you go to the doctor? You say, I've got this and you leave with that uh, muscle relaxer. Uh, I mean, your muscles are twerking and need to be relaxed is the like only that's thing what, I can think that's, of. Okay. It's a, you know, it's a, yeah, it's a form of, um, it's a form of, of anti anesthesia, I guess. It's a, you know, in my experience, as somebody who never once took the recommended dose of anything, <laughs> um, in the quantities of muscle relaxants that I took when they were made available to me, uh, what it produced was sort of a, almost an inability to stand, you know, right. I, I, and, and, and uh, an inability to stand the following day. I mean, you could stand of course, but like I went to, I woke up one morning having taken recreational muscle relaxants mm. and, uh, you know, sat up in bed and went to go to the bathroom and just fell flat on my face. Oh my God. Uh, which I thought was hilarious because I did manage to like get those muscles going and get them <laughs> to get me up and get me out into the, the hall. But, um, but that was one of those like lol drugs, lol. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but sugar, now I've discovered that sugar, what sugar does, sugar is like bad speed. It gets you all, you know, tweaky and, and teeth grindy. Yeah. Uh, and then the rest of the day you kind of feel like nauseous and then you can't sleep. Why would you voluntarily take that drug? I mean, it's very delicious is why, mm -hmm. but it's making me, when I go to the supermarket now and I look at how much sugar there is in things and then I go up and I put my code into the, to the supermarket to get my discount. The whole experience now is like, my mom calls it capitalist food. Hmm. She says there's this whole category of food that's just capitalist. There's no capitalist has, food. Yeah, there's no point to it. It has no nutritive value. It's not really food. Oh. It's it's capitalist food, meaning that it's a its primary uh purpose is to make money for someone. It isn't its primary purpose is not to to feed people or to make people um to keep people alive, its primary purpose is to make money for someone. And she's very, very suspicious of capitalist food. Right. And she feels like capitalist food is one of the many ways that capitalism has has uh, perverted itself mm. and gone from a way to uh, 
power innovation and growth mm-hmm. to a way uh, to uh, just a whole system of exploiting and manipulating and uh, you know raping for lack of a better word mm. the earth and and everyone involved and you know I, my mom is a radical so <laughs> she and I you know my mom also doesn't believe there should be a military and my mom is you know routinely goes and accosts police mm-hmm. who she feels are being insufficiently friendly or vigilant <laughs> on the street mm-hmm you know, she basically, in, if if my mom were a cartoon, which she almost is, mm-hmm. uh, she would go hit the police with an umbrella. <laughs> but she's from the Northwest, so she doesn't carry an umbrella. Right, sure. Uh, or she would hit them with a frying pan, but she doesn't fry her food. <laughs> so, uh, so what she does is go and say, <clears throat> which is, you know, the worst. If you hear my mom go, clear her throat, <clears> throat> That's the absolute. Oh, something bad is. Oh, something bad is about to happen. Okay. <laughs> when my mom clears her throat, I stop talking. Oh boy. If we're in the middle of a conversation, if some, if, if there's a room full of people and something, and my mom goes, <clears throat> I, I immediately am like, I, is she I never find, just clearing her throat? Right? No, 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 never, never, never. I always will find the the nearest chair and sit down, because uh, because that is a when it gets to that mm-hmm. when she has to clear her throat, boy, that's the beginning of the end. <laughs> And my sister too. I mean, when when my mom clears her throat, yeah, that'll even stop my sister in her tracks. So, whoo, boy, mm-hmm. I uh, I'm over the years. You know, I was I was more radical than my mom for a period in yeah. my at my most radical, and then I started to become more pragmatic um, as I was. You know, because my mom is political in the way that radicals are political, which is that it's a kind of pick and choose politics. Like any extremist, you look at the you look at politics and you see what you want to see. And mm-hmm. I I was very interested in politics, and so I think if you're if you're a very political person, you become and fascinated by politics. You know, you can't. You don't um, pick and choose, and right. that is that. That's what politics is. That makes that's why it's confusing, and that's why um, there's so much gamesmanship in it. But as as my mom became the the further left than I was, you know, we would get into these hilarious uh, disagreements where the eighty year old woman was telling me that we needed to defund the police. And I was the one, you know, the, the, the young rock and roll. And I put young in scare quotes. All right. But you know, the, the, the rock guy was like, now listen, mom, you can't do away. You can't entirely do away with the police. Uh, but now, you know, I'm the pendulum is swinging on me again and I'm getting more and more. I, I, more and more radical in my way. You know, I'm, I, I'm not a, I'm not a joiner and I don't, I'm not a socialist. Well, that's not entirely true. I've always been kind of a socialist, but it's so, you know, like a, like a big government socialist, mm-hmm. not a burn, burn it all down socialist, right? which I wouldn't call a socialist. I would call, I would call, if you want to burn it all down, then you're a Marxist. And calling yourself a socialist is just, you're just trying to niceify it. 
you're just trying to make it seem soft. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the the experience of you know my mom's this morning sat and, and uh, shook her finger at me and talking to me about capitalist food, and I was like, look, man, I'm on the same, I'm on your team. I'm not sitting here eating. I'm not. You're, I'm not sitting on the couch eating a bunch of capitalist food in your face. Right. I'm. I'm trying to. I'm trying to get as much kale in my diet as I can. But you know, once she gets going, what are you gonna? You can't interrupt her. You just well, have I mean, to- and that's the thing. You know, my mom's. I think similar age, age to yours, a few years younger, maybe. And you know, it seems like their opinions become more solidified and stronger the older that they get. And I had always thought maybe the other thing would happen. I thought as you get older, you're like, nah, whatever, I've seen it all, whatever works for you. But in fact, it seems like maybe it's the opposite, that they actually are like more convinced that what they think is right is right. Well, and I think that progressivism always had a component of people in their 80s who, um, who had seen it all and were out there, uh, you know, really out on the barricades. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, as we know, conservatism also has its also is bolstered by a um, a big phalanx of old people who don't want to lose what they've gained, want to you know cling to it. Um, but you know, all old people ought to become soylent green past a certain point. All this <laughs> okay, business of really living to one hundred and twenty, no thanks. Like what the. What the fuck past a hundred are you bringing to the world besides some colorful stories about how you smoked one cigar a day and that's why you live to be a hundred past that? Mm-hmm. I mean, even at a hundred, what are you seriously, seriously, what are you doing here? Get out of here. I don't know. Go what. Is, I mean, but look, at, look at how age, look at how age longevity has, has changed. You know, I'm not just talking about thousands of years ago when people old, old was like 40. But, you know, there are people who are in their 70s who are in great health and 80s who are still in relatively good health and still productive and sharing ideas. And I don't know, like, what if what if you could be 80 years old and in in the same health that you were in when you were in your 40s? Well, here's the thing about longevity, right? If longevity, if what longevity did was make your 30s last longer. Yeah. Bring the longevity. And in a way, I think that's what's happened, right? I'm 52 Mm -hmm. and I still, and I probably have the health and vitality of a 1920s farmer who is 30, Uh right? Uh Who, who for 15 years has been breaking his back over a plow, over an oxen pulled plow, and then eating as much gravy covered cheap cuts of meat as his, uh, as his spouse could prepare for him Mm -hmm. before getting up at dawn and doing it again. So now at 52, I'm probably not as strong as that farmer, but I also still am able to, you know, like dance and in, in most of the world a hundred years ago where the life expectancy was 50, including most of the United States, right? You know, the life expectancy was 50 because a lot of people, a lot of people died in infancy. Um, but you know, a lot of people were pretty ragged by the time they were my age. So longevity has extended our thirties 
And my mom is, is proof positive that you can be 87 years old and still basically do more physical labor even mm-hmm. than her 52-year-old son would dare. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to buy her a new wheelbarrow because she was loading up my big wheelbarrow so full of stuff that I looked out the window one time and she was she was plodding up the road carrying this wheelbarrow full of dirt. Um, and she, I mean, there are oxen that work less hard. <laughs> And I was like, mom, that wheelbarrow is weighs more than you do. And she was like, well, you know, what do you, what else are you going to do? And so I was like, what if I get you one wheelbarrow down, like just buy you a slight, a smaller wheelbarrow. And this was her mother's day present, uh, uh, her own wheelbarrow that she could leave at my house. Now that at 87 is, a, I think a great accomplishment. Oh yeah. But when she, she looks me dead in the eye and goes, if I get to be a hundred, Will you find me an ice flow, please, and put me on it? Because there's no reason for me to still be here at 100. What am I, you know, at 87? I'm just, I'm just uh, pulling this, this weight because it's all I know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, longevity. When you push, when you push out to 114 years old, it's not that the last 40 years of your life are full of calisthenics yeah you know at a certain point you're just kind of tottering down to the coffee shop and having your one cigar a day but dan honestly i'm not a i'm not a longevist a long a longevist you're gonna be content you think that you'll be content when when it's your time you won't look back and say man i wish i had another five years (laughs) another five years yeah my dad died at 87 and by the time he was 87 he was old, um, because he hadn't taken care of his body, but, and by not taken care of, I mean that for the first 70 years of his life, he just used his body as hard as he could, Mm -hmm. did everything he wanted, beat himself up. And then for the last 17 years of his life, he, he got hit in the eye by a tennis ball when he was 77 or something like that, or maybe 80, he was out playing doubles tennis which as you know, is the easier, that's how you keep playing tennis into your eighties. Yeah. You only got to cover half the court really. Yeah. Doubles. I mean, come on. Um, my uncle Jack played doubles tennis until he was in his nineties. And then I think he finally quit the tennis club, not because he didn't want to play tennis anymore, but because he decided they were racist. Hmm. And so he was like, I'm not going to that tennis club anymore. And I felt like, well, you're also 90. So, but that wasn't what slowed him down. But my dad got hit with an errant tennis ball and it dislodged something in his eye. He lost his depth perception. And that was oh, what man. started him down the, you know, cause he was like, I don't, you know, I can't do the things I used to do. But when my dad died, you know, he kept his generally, uh, cantankerous, but merry disposition. Mm-hmm. Right up until the end, you know, he still was fucking with people until the very end. And it's cause he never, he, cause even though he was 87 and he hadn't taken care of himself, he didn't think he was going to die. He kept thinking he was going to get better. Right. He thought that age was something that you could get better from. But my uncle Jack, who just died this year and with whom I spent a lot of concentrated time over the last 10 years, 
Was he the one in Hawaii? He was the one in Hawaii. Okay. At 96 years old, Jack was frustrated because he didn't, because he wasn't getting better. And I don't know whether that's generational. I think it is. I don't, you know, both of their parents lived, well, their father was an alcoholic and died in his 50s, but their mother lived into her late 80s hmm. um, back in the 1970s, and, and her brother did, and their older brother was 92 or something, and my mom's family all lived into their 90s. So it's not like this is a new experience mm -hmm. in our family where we live to be old, but Uncle Jack was frustrated and my sister and his daughters worked on him for years trying to get him to be at peace with how it all went down. Like, hey, life was long and life was good and look what you did and we made it. And he was just not, he was just too, he had uh, some other expectations that weren't met and I, and I don't think any of us were able to figure out what those were. And I don't think he ever was able to articulate it, but mm -hmm. there was a feeling of dissatisfaction that almost made it feel like if he'd been hit by a lightning bolt at 85, um, I mean, definitely the last 10 years of his life were amazing and we all, we all got to be together mm -hmm. and that was important and valuable, but but there's something to be said for getting struck by lightning uh, because I don't know, because you still think you're going to live forever and you don't have to have that experience of like, what was it all for? What was it all mm -hmm. about? Mm -hmm. Which I don't think everybody's inclined to do, but boy, if you are inclined to do it, it's, you know, it's as bad as, <laughs> and I don't want to characterize the last years of uncle Jack's life as bad at all. But just that that discontent of feeling like there should have been something else or that there should have been a purpose, I think it is the comfort of religion, mm -hmm. which we uh, in the main do not have in my family. Um, I Thinking back into the history of our family on both sides, mother's and father's side, I'm trying to think of a religious person mm. and at least on my mother's side and I, and in this, I include my sister. Um, they invent their own religion out of whole cloth and then subscribe to it. You know, it's a, it's a completely invented and individual religion. It has very few, it has very little in common with any organized religion. Mm-hmm. But then they really buy into it and they, you know, they basically build a little temple and then they, they go there and worship. And, you know, honestly, my dad did the same thing. My dad, my dad, you know, burned a candle for his dead sister or whatever, except he wouldn't, he wouldn't waste a candle. <laughs> but as far as anybody in my family, when was the last, how many generations ago was the last one that went to church and believed it? And I don't know. I think it fades into prehistory. Mm. And so that is maybe, you know, that becomes an affliction at a certain point when you're looking, if you're in, if you're 
inclined to look for answers. Right. And I, I am, uh, I'm trying very hard to learn not to look for answers. And, um, and I feel like it's either, a, uh, it's an inherited trait mm-hmm. that is like God's joke. Why put this in people's minds? You know, like why not, why not have given me the ability to throw a javelin and trade that for my ability to sit and search for meaningful patterns mm. in, in a fractal universe. <laughs> and so I'm trying, I wrote an email to a psychiatrist the other day. I've been looking for some mental health professionals mm-hmm. Partly because everybody tells me that I should, and partly because have you been seeing it? You've been seeing a guy though, right? Well, yeah, but he just wants to talk about Pearl Jam. (laughs) I mean, he's a guy my age who, um, you know, who feels like he's done a pretty good job Mm -hmm. in life, but he's uncomplicated, and I think this is part of the problem. I don't want an uncomplicated mental health professional. You would think those would be the best ones. They can focus more on your issues if they themselves are uncomplicated. Yeah, but how can Laser they possibly focus. how can they possibly understand my issues? Because this is one of they the have things- PhDs. They've been to school. They've spent. I cannot scoff at a PhD harder. I mean, if you have a PhD, but in they spent de- a decade or two. I mean, how if they if if the guy's your age, then the guy's probably been working for thirty years, right? Yeah, jacking off in a cup. Years. I mean, you know, <laughs> like if you don't if you don't suffer, how can you understand suffering? I I cannot disagree with that. Book. I don't disagree with that. Yeah, you know, and so at the last time I went, he like he handed me he handed me Euripides or something. He was like, read this. And I was like, read this, my ass. Mm. Did you say that? Or did you just sort of take it, take the book I and leave? I took it. Mm-hmm. I took it and went, hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I want, you know, what I want is an arrogant Jewish guy, frankly, uh-huh. uh, who who both culturally suffers and also thinks he's really superior. So someone who's been born with a, a sort of collective memory of suffering that goes back thousands of years. That's the person you want. Yes. But also with, you know, with a certain amount of personal anxiety and right. You can't avoid that. in what you're describing, you're going to get that anyway, but I want him to have a PhD from, and I want it to be a guy and I want him to have a PhD from an Ivy League school that he's very proud of, uh, but also feels like he was entitled to. And I want him to sit across from me in a chair and mm-hmm. imagine that he is superior to me. Mm-hmm. Because in, in that case... You'll respect you know, his authority almost a little bit more if, if you feel that way, right? Oh, no, no, no. I'll try everything I can do to unseat him. Mm. But that will be the game that we play. You know, we'll sit across from each other and he'll go, mm-hmm, and I'll go, mm-hmm. And that will be great. I don't want somebody who's like, oh, well, it sounds to me like well, you have a thing that I read about. Wow. Like, 
you know, no, I don't want that. I want you to, I want you to be testing out all of your, your crackpot theories that you learned from some other older crackpot. Because I do believe in talk therapy and, and increasingly, I guess I believe in chemistry, Mm -hmm. brain chemistry. Right. Sure. Although that also seems like jacking off in a cup a little bit. Trying to make this stuff into a science is what I don't truck with entirely. Mm. I believe in science, Dan. You know I do. Yeah. I believe that at a certain point, the higher maths tread into philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I believe that mathematicians believe that the higher maths trend into philosophy. And I reject or object to the idea that the higher philosophy trends into the maths. Hmm. It's the other way around. You know, the mathematicians become physicists, become cosmologists. You don't go, you know, the, the Buddhist doesn't become a mathematician. It doesn't work the other way. Right. The language of God is math, but it is God we're seeking, not math. Mm Mm-hmm. And so you go sit in a psychiatrist chair, the psychiatrist wants to turn your problems into math. No, screw you. My problems aren't math. It's not a thing that you're going to find the neuron that needs to get, uh, that needs to have its back rubbed. It's something else. (laughs) It's, it's the, it's the better angels or the worse ones. It's the, uh, you know, it's the fucking trees is what it is. Mm-hmm. It's spooky action at a distance. <laughs> but but it's got to be. So I sent an email to this guy. Right. And I said, and basically the email was like, you know, I read your biography. And, you know, the first thing I'd like to say is fuck you. <laughs> and the second thing I'd like to say is, do you have any openings? And his, uh, his you know, assistant mm-hmm. called me on the phone, which is strike one. Um, but she seemed to indicate that, that he had openings. Well, what he said on his thing was, I don't take insurance. If you want to come see me, you can pay for it. And I was like, that's the most arrogant thing I ever heard. Like I can't afford to go to this guy, but I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And he said, you know, I'm willing to fill out, I'm, I'm willing to, to write a letter where you can take the letter to your insurance company and try to get reimbursed. And I said, oh, that sounds like the absolute worst thing in the world that I will never do. But um, maybe someone will help me do it. Anyway, of all the bios I've read, and I went and read the, the biographies of 75 psychiatrists and as soon as they started talking about wellness i was just punching out don't talk to me about wellness you don't, even, a like, you don't even like the word wellness no there's no such thing i'm but the, but this is the problem right i'm a curmudgeon that that is looking for meaning and that is that's uh cantankerous and and dissatisfied mm-hmm. and i recognize that that's the actual problem i'm trying to solve but the only method i have of solving it is to use that cantankerous dissatisfaction to find to try and find a path. 
how do I use how do I use peace and 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 calm and contentment mm-hmm. if that is what I seek? I can't I can't um, I can't employ a thing I do not have. True. I uh, it's not I am the opposite of Sinead O'Connor. I do want what I haven't got. <laughs> I went to the pharmacy today <laughs> because I because I was prescribed these medications and. I resisted medications for years, mostly because I never wanted to have to go to a pharmacy. Hmm. And now they've got me, you know, I'm, I'm trapped. I'm middle-aged and I need, I need blood pressure medication because although I'm trying to give up sugar, it's very hard to give up salt and it's very, which is another kind of poison. And it's also very hard for me to give up carbohydrates. The third, uh, you know, the hypotenuse of poison. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I, ha- I take this high blood pressure, pressure medication and it may just be that it's not related to diet at all. And I'm just one of the people that this is just another gag that God has played on me. Like, ha-ha. you're just, just going to have high blood pressure, whether or not you change your diet or exercise or anything. Is that, that's what you're saying? Well, I don't know who, to, who it the could fuck be. Knows? That's the experiment. Could be. Could be. Their high blood pressure is just a thing. It isn't mm-hmm. a symptom necessarily. It's just a thing. You can look at it as a symptom, mm-hmm. but there are people that look at bipolar as a symptom. Mm-hmm. There are people that look at alcoholism as a symptom. I mean, for years I would go to a psychiatrist and they would say, I think what you're calling alcoholism is just you self-medicating your bipolar. And I would go, uh-huh. And then I would talk to somebody else and they would say, I think your bipolar is what you're calling bipolar is just a manifestation of the suffering that you're, that was, is brought on by your alcoholism. Mm. And I was like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. And my high blood pressure is probably related to those things too. So I do or don't eat potatoes because I'm already not eating them. Maybe I should eat them. You know, I just jumped out of, I jumped out of it all. And I wandered around and I would go 48 hours without eating. And that just felt like, sure. I mean, it's the other alternative is that I'm every month I'm sitting in a pharmacist's wondering why I don't have any refills. Mm. And so I'm at a pharmacist today wondering why I don't have any refills saying the same thing I say every time, which is I'm not selling this blood pressure medicine on the black market. I'm not on tour selling my bipolar medicine because there's no market for it. Nobody wants this stuff. I just want to, I just have to take it. So please give me unlimited refills. I don't need to come in and talk to a psychiatrist about Pearl jam every month. So he really talk. That's really what he talks to you about. Oh, I don't know. You know, he's, he's my age and he's from Seattle. And so he wants to relate to me, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't have, suffering mm-hmm. he goes skiing and he loves his wife and they live in a big house on lake sammamish um and i and he has never indicated that he understands suffering at all except as a except as a math problem mm-hmm. and so in trying to relate to me he wants to relate to me as a hip guy and he wants me to understand that he gets it. He gets it. But 
um, I don't want a hip guy. I don't want to talk to a hip guy. I want to talk to the unhippest guy there is. I want to talk to somebody that's never been to a show because he was too worried. He was too worried to go to the show. That's who I want to tell, to talk to, uh, talk to about my problems. He was too worried and also too smart to go to a show. That's, and then I can disabuse him of that notion. And, you know, and I can, uh, and I can engage in battle with this person, which is what I truly want. I want to engage in battle where the stakes are God. You know, I want to, I want to be a Tumultic scholar. That's oh. basically what I was put on earth to do. I was put on earth to sit in a room and yell at other people about the scriptures. But I don't care about the scripture. I mean, you know, I yell about yell about the scriptures that only we have agreed upon. Have you ever? I mean, you say it has to be a, a guy. Yeah. Every psychiatrist until this one that wants to talk about Pearl Jam, every psychiatrist I ever went to was a woman. Mm -hmm. Have you had better experience with the guy? No, but I didn't have that great of an experience with the women. Mm -hmm. And partly it was that it's very difficult to talk about sex with a female psychiatrist. Hmm. And not because I'm inhibited, but because they are. I've never had a I've never had a female counselor that wanted to talk to me about sex in any real way. And I don't like being redirected. I shouldn't be I shouldn't have to be redirected. And I know when I'm being redirected. And I don't want a sex therapist either because I can't think of a more diseased bunch of people than the people that choose to become sex counselors. At least in my experience. And when my experience is not not, um, not that limited. I know mm -hmm. a lot of people who became professional sex therapists and I had sex with a couple of them and that's not the ones I want to talk to about sex, frankly. Right. right. I want to talk to somebody who believes in the Talmud about sex, mm. except not the Talmud the Talmud that we agree upon and not Euripides. And, and honestly, maybe 5% Pearl Jam. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's going to be part of your, Ugh. you're going to run into that wherever you go. Like, how can you not? So I got this new car and you I did. Yeah. And I programmed, it's a used car. But it's a new use, new to newer you. used, car. New, to you. new to me. I programmed in the local radio stations into the radio, mm -hmm. and I was listening to one of them, and it played uh, "Rebel Yell" by Billy Idol. Mm, good song. Yeah, and what I like to do with the thing like that when it comes on the radio, I haven't listened to "Rebel Yell" in a long time. But what I've never really done is study "Rebel Yell," mm. uh, because "Rebel Yell" was was ubiquitous at a time when I was consuming a ton of music and I feel like I know the DNA of rebel yell, but I've never sat as a, as a person who's been in the music business for 25 years, making albums sat with the in particular rebel yell 
and figured out what is working in Rebel Yell, why it works and what's happening. And sitting and listening to Rebel Yell in the car, you know, I turned it up loud and I'm driving around and I'm struck by what a phenomenal accomplishment Rebel Yell is. There's a lot going on. It's, it's ahead of its time. It was, it really connected with people in its moment. It's also, you know, like it's borrowing from everything. It's, um, but it's also very individual and I'm listening to it and I get to the end and I'm like rebel yell, like what a thing. It's like ZZ tops eliminator. You can dismiss it as a, um, as a thing that has too much gloss, but in fact, there's everything there. Mm-hmm. Look, really? Prin- it's all Prince's there. You're saying it's a complete, a complete song. It's a complete work. And so I listened to it. And at the very end, and he sings it twice in the song. When he goes, yes, 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 about me. And my entire life, I've heard him say, how did you hear about me? Mm-hmm. And I always loved the lyric. How did you hear about me? Because. And listening to it, I was like, wait a minute. What does that mean in the context of the song? So I, when I got home, I read the lyrics of Rebel, Rebel Yell. And what he in fact says is, uh, to have you here by me. And what he's talking about. Really? That's the yes. actual lyrics. Yes. I to had, have you here by me. You're kidding. No. And the poignancy. Wait, 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 wait. To have you here by me. Yeah. He says. I hear it now. And. Yeah. Oh my God. Like that's here's changing the, everything now for here's me. The like lyrics. my whole life is I have to reevaluate everything. I'd sell my soul <laughs> for you, babe. For money to burn for you, I'd give you all and have none, babe. Now, I always heard that I give you all and have none, babe, which is a which feels like like a tough guy, a resentful lyric. I give you all and have none, babe. Like, look at my sacrifice. But what he says is I'd give you all and have none, babe. Just to just to just to just to to have you here by me. Mm. And all of a sudden, Rebel Yell's breaking my heart. Like, that's <laughs> Seriously, not, it's a different I, song now. It is. I thought Billy Idol was talking about what a, what, you know, how, how hard his heart was. How did you hear about me? Super swagger, arrogant. I'm the center of this. And it's not at all. He'd sell his soul for money to burn for you, to give you all and have none, babe, just to have you here by me. Hmm. What the, what the fuck it, what, what, where did all this happen? When did Billy Idol, you know, a, a fairly callow Bromley contingent pretty boy who, you know, who was like too gloss for punk. He didn't, he didn't steal the backbeat of the West Indies like the clash did. He just went gloss and somehow he found Steve Stevens who throws guitar all over this tune 
where there's there's six times in Rebel Yell where you're like, what chord is that, Steve Stevens? How are you walking down from there to there through all of that noise and still finding a no 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 no? What are what are you doing, Steve Stevens? How are you so far ahead of everybody else? And at that moment, at that weird moment in time, early, early, early 80s, 1983, but he had already written those songs um, when he was in Generation X or whatever. Now, what am I, what am I, where do I go, where do I go now? I'm mm-hmm. 52. I'm not, Rebel Yell isn't relevant. It's not relevant to anybody. But I got in the car today started driving down to the pharmacist rebel yell comes on again because modern radio programming only has even the classic radio stations, even the, the slam and hits of the eighties and nineties, they only have 50 songs in rotation and they have to, you know, and some of it has to get burned up by Hoobastank. So here's rebel yell again, but now I'm ready. You know, now I know what's coming. Mm-hmm. What, you know, what's happening to me that, I mean, this isn't like me. I'm not some baby boomer <laughs> who's tearing up at the Supreme. Maybe you are. Well, well I mean, that, you can tear up at the Supremes without being a baby boomer, I suppose. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, my whole life, because I've been, because Generation X grew up in the shadow of, of, uh, the baby boomers like I'm tearing up at Marvin Gaye and I'm only 27 years old. What have I got to be sentimental about and how the hell is my sentimentality connected to Marvin Gaye? It isn't. I, I can, I'll tell you what though. I feel like this is something else that you're touching on. You mentioned Marvin Gaye. Um, you know, I, you don't laugh. I'm not going to laugh, but the songs that he came out with late seventies, early eighties, so I think some of his best work, I'm not talking to mm. hurt it through the grapevine. I mean, that's, I, I'm not, I don't connect with that song. No, except for the stupid raisins commercial. And I don't connect with that at all, but like the, for lack of a, another term, the sexual healing time period of yes. his stuff is really great. It's really great stuff. Like I don't, I like the, the sort of, you know, when I used to buzz the sides of my hair and and uh, and and wear combat boots, Dead Kennedy's sort of eleventh grade version of myself would be like, "What are you talking about?" And he would want to beat me up for saying this. Mm. He couldn't take me. Let's be honest. But mm-hmm. I don't know. no, he couldn't. I'm much much stronger now than Marvin Gaye. No, than the junior version of myself. Oh, 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 I see. Marvin Gaye could take anybody. He could take Chuck Norris as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, Marvin Gaye is no no slouch. No. But you're saying that, that your 11th grade self couldn't, could not the, contend with he your couldn't, He self. couldn't land a blow. I'm telling you, he couldn't land okay. a blow. All right, I believe that. I believe that. But that music is really good. And like I, I, I so what I think you're identifying is something that the only time that, you, that we have felt or we have seen people connecting with music that expresses those things is the, our, our parents' generation, our prior generation. And it's just the fact that we've now moved into the age when we saw and experienced those people connecting in that way that you say to yourself, 
I must be like that. But I think it's just a rite of passage is what I'm trying to say. I, I'm watching this TV show. Uh, it's from Spain. It's a Spanish show. It's uh, in the, uh, the English version. It's called Money Heist, which is maybe the worst show title in history. And it's, and it's made worse by the fact that in Spanish, the show is called Paper House, which is a great title for this show. Mm-hmm. And why they translated it to money, why they changed it to Money Heist, I cannot know. And no one can know it because it, because it makes no sense. But Money Heist is this Spanish show that got picked up by Netflix and it's very popular. The only way to watch it is in Spanish. There is a dubbed version, but it, it's a crime against nature. And it's one of these shows, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but it's a show where the first two seasons, it's four seasons long, the first two seasons, which were made independent of Netflix, were just impeccable television. Um, just a wonderful TV show, uh, a, uh, a thoughtful one, full of adventure, but full of psychology too, and just great acting, tremendous acting. And then Netflix picked it up and I think poured money into it. Yeah. And they did two more seasons, which um, are hot garbage. And in the weirdest way, because the second two seasons, or the, I'm sorry, the third and fourth season, feel like they're written by, on the one hand, the original writer is still there because every, because every episode has one or two scenes that are still impeccable. And then the other 75% of the show is written by a team of people who belong in jail. And so I keep watching it. And this never happens to me. When a show turns to hot garbage, I'm out. I leave. Uh, And I don't look back. Yeah, you don't care. You don't have time for that. What the hell am I going to do? Am I going to watch season two of Deadwood all the way through? No. Am I going to watch Mad what Men was wrong with past a certain point? was fantastic. No, 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 it turned to garbage. And Mad Men turned to garbage. They all turned to garbage eventually. But this show, I keep watching even though it has turned to garbage because there's 25% of it that's good. Or, or 20%. Let's say 18% of it is good. Okay. And it's good enough that I'll sit through the rest of it because I have this, I have this memory still of when it was so good. But last night I'm watching an episode and one of the characters says to another in a scene that is otherwise total garbage. Character says it takes more love takes more courage than war. And the character is this Serbian veteran of the of the Balkan Wars. Okay. Who's gay and has a heart of gold. And he's saying it to a woman who is his platonic love in encouraging her to seek out a relationship with an a, the, the, an actor who is an actual sort of Spanish boxing champion mm-hmm. who also is a big tough guy but has a heart of gold. Love takes more courage than war. And I, I went... <sighs> Huh. That's the, it's the easiest thing in the world to say. It's absolutely true. I guess as much as you can put words together and anything can be true. 
But I, I, I walk around now thinking that there are, that there are things to puzzle out and my own life is the chessboard mm-hmm. or is the playing field or the court, the piste. As, does love take more courage than war? I don't really, I have not been to war and I have not been to love. And in that sense, I'm only talking about it like my psychiatrist is talking about suffering. Mm-hmm. I only know about it from reading in books. I only know about war from reading in books unless you're talking about the irony wars of the 90s. And I only know about love from reading in books unless you're talking about the irony wars of the 90s. Right. And um, so Billy, uh, Billy Idol comes on. I get into Rebel Yell trying to figure out how the guitar tone is being employed. And all of a sudden, Billy Idol it turns out this whole time Billy Idol has been expressing something about love and sacrifice that makes that hits me as hard as sexual healing mm-hmm. or what's going on even right yeah uh and it's not well maybe it is because Billy Idol in his youth tapped into the the universal ohm Mm -hmm. or that Billy Idol had suffered or that Billy Idol just, um, just slipped on suffering and it made it into his music. Right. He just stumbled into it somehow. I have no idea how 21 year olds write great songs, but they do all the time. Great songs at 21. No. How do you, I I mean, you can look back at your, your history of that, but you're not going to hear it the way that other people hear it. You're not going to hear your work the way that I hear it or the way that I started writing. I started writing good songs when I was 27. Uh, and prior to that, I wrote rough drafts and I, I adopted voices because I didn't understand what my voice was. And so I tried on different voices. Mm-hmm. What about this? What if I what if I talked like this? What if I talked like that? Um, walking around pretending, basically, uh, using a British accent. And it was not because I had not experienced suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was because, you know, uh, there's a part of me definitely at the time that felt, and this is, this sounds weird, but that felt like I was too smart to have a voice that having a voice was not a, uh, not a function of intelligence. And in some ways was a function of a, of, of a thing that is, at opposites with an intelligence, which is not to say a lack of intelligence, but a thing that tilts against intelligence. And I couldn't rid myself of intelligence enough to have a viewpoint 
because all I could see was everything. And how do you have a viewpoint? How do you, how do you stand on a, on a hill and plant a flag? Mm-hmm. And in trying to find my voice, I realized, I think somewhere along the line that it was not necessary to have a viewpoint. It was not necessary to make a stand in order to have a voice. It was not necessary to, um, to have a, well, yeah, to have a, um, to, to find a place in the world, Mm -hmm. which I thought was what, of what, and I think the best voices often come from someone who is located in a place in the world. Mm -hmm. Now there are voices like David Bowie where Bowie isn't located in a place in the world. Bowie is smart. Bowie has intelligence and Bowie was able to find a voice in many places. And realizing that there are lots of those voices like Billy Joel is writing from a place in the world. Um, Bruce Springsteen, Pearl Jam, they're writing from a place. Uh, but David Bowie and honestly Prince, Marvin Gaye, they're writing from places and they don't, you know, and they can, in those places, they can express real views, but they're not, uh, defined by their views. And in figuring that out, it took me until I was 27 to say, no, 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 you can, you can be, you can have your voice. You can be your voice and also be in all these different places. And that's when I started to write well, Mm -hmm. and I think I continued to mostly write well within my capacity from that point on, from 27 to 37, which is when I mostly stopped writing music. And, you know, and I think why I'm able to podcast is that I'm able to that I do have a voice and it's, and it is not confined to a place. But that also means that I'm never located. I'm never located enough to fight in a war and I'm never located enough to have the courage for love. And, uh, and where is that the, is that the the maths that that trend into philosophy? Is that is that the carpet I'm trying to ride? In order that I not be 97 and still pounding my fist on the dining room table asking why? Right. And so you know, I believe that talk therapy works and I believe that the 10 years that I've been talking to Merlin and to you has worked. Um, 
but I, I'm, I'm ready for a redirect. Like this, this spring has been a real opportunity and I feel like I've only half inhabited it. I've stepped, you know, I stepped into the, the antechamber or the, the mud room. I stepped into the mud room of it and kicked off my boots and went, huh, okay, all right, this is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. But I guess I'm at a loss as to, as to how to step further in to the opportunity because I don't, because I'm not coming from a place and I don't have an identity and I don't take, I don't have a mentor and I don't take, you know, the, when someone reaches out their hand, I don't take it. I shake it. And so what, it, what do you do? What do you do when you're 52 and you're, and you thought that you were going to live on the edge of town your whole life and now literally do live on the edge of town? And I think I used to be, a, I used to go argue the Talmud. I just did it in, uh, I did it with rock and roll and I've done it. I've done it in the I've done it in the the personal world of of um, hotel lobbies and but I haven't I haven't found it there. But my God, if I am going to move to town and marry the the madam that lives in the hotel, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think that I don't think I'm the sheriff that that marries the madam because I was never the sheriff. <laughs> You know, the, the, the trapper doesn't come to town and marry the madam. Right. And who else would I marry besides the madam? The school marm? Maybe, maybe, maybe the school marm. But no, the school marm mar- marries the hero and I'm not the hero. Maybe you are. I don't know. The hero? Maybe. I mean, everyone's kind of the hero of their own story. They're the protagonist. Oh, but that's it. The, but that's it. I don't want to be the hero of my own story. Choice. You've been cast oh, already in that the, role. Fuck You've the already hero been cast. You've story. been cast. Yeah, but my story? Who gives a shit? You're either the hero of the story uh-huh. or you're something else in the story. I'm not interested in my story. I think that's a modern uh, disease of the mind. Hmm. I'm interested in the story. Now, maybe that's a disease of the mind, Hmm. but I don't think it is. I think the story, and I know there's somebody in the, somebody in our varied audience who's going his story, but uh, the story is something I still believe in. And maybe that's, and I think there was one and maybe that's a thing of the past. Mm Mm-hmm. But that I don't, I'm not sure that that is progress or, you know, and that sounds, that sounds, uh, revanchist, but I don't think it is. I'm not 52 years old and longing for a time when there was a story rather than a multiplicity of stories. I think a multiplicity can be and needs to be in the story, 
but we're not trying to make a like a broken window pane of stories and call it a window pane. Right. You know, a, 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 the, the art is not the shards. The shards are the art. And my shard is only useful if it's part of the art. I don't, I didn't break or play any role in breaking the art in order to free my shard, you know, like I'm not one of the chips of stone that got removed in order for David to appear. You're either part of David or you are swept into a pile and used as mortar. But I don't think I'm the white hat and I hope to God I'm not the black hat. I'm not the priest. I'm not the merchant. I'm not the farmer. I don't think I'm one of the whores. But if it's your story, you're the automatic protagonist. It's just, that's just how it works. I don't give a shit about my story. Maybe I'm the madam. <laughs> <laughs> 